2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Now, if you would like to sign up for Chen's letter, you do need to put your name on the waiting list. Go to MiningStocks.com, MiningStocks.com, and at the beginning of the next calendar quarter, Chen will be accepting new subscribers. You can, however, sign up for my newsletter anytime by going to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com and Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks comments weekly on the markets and also provides uh, what I think are some very, very exciting uh, gold and silver mining stock stories these days, and uh, we are seeing a very significant increase in the price of uh, these mining shares so far this year. For example, two of the sponsors of the show, Brazil Resources and Metanor Resources, their share prices are up uh, be, uh, 38% uh, percent and 50%, respectively, in the month of January alone. Lots of good news coming in the mining sector. Our other, our other sponsor, Nanostruck Technologies, some good news there, and we'll be talking to the uh, to the CEOs of all of these companies over the next few weeks. So, uh, but there's lots of other mining companies that are looking extremely good right now. Uh, then I think that we, uh, in the share side at least have turned the corner. Uh, in the uh, in the mining sector. Well, we do have a very busy schedule today, so let's get right to today's show. I've titled today's show, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, and that is a title taken from the book of uh, James Turk and John Rubino, who we'll be talking to in about 20 minutes from now. In addition to Turk and Rubino, Gene Epstein and David Gerwitz will also return today. Gene will be with me in just a couple of minutes to discuss how free market medicine is drastically reducing the cost of surgical procedures in Oklahoma, and to talk about the work of Dr. Keith Smith, who has been involved in setting uh, people free of the monster costs of medicine imposed by our crony capitalist system right now. Gene uh, will be with me in just a couple of minutes, and then Turk and Rabino to talk about their latest book, The Money Bubble which builds on the earlier blockbuster the coming collapse of the dollar again uh, this is going to be i think a very important discussion today how did we get in the mess we're in it's far bigger than that of the nineteen thirties the way it looks what are the consequences what are things that you should understand about the dangers and opportunities that will result from the impending crisis and what you can do to protect yourself against it also is bitcoin a revolution or a trap Uh, So the first half of my interview with Turk and Rubino will be aired here at Voice America. The second half will be aired only at jaytaylormedia.com, J-A-Y, taylormedia.com. But I should remind you, in fact, that the entire show can be downloaded at jaytaylormedia.com by tomorrow. In the second half of the second hour of J. Taylor Media, David Gerwitz of Charles Nanner research will update us on Charles Nanner's latest views on the gold and silver markets. Finally, in the second hour of today's show, I will also pass along some of the ideas from some very strong technical analysts about when the gold bull market will get underway again, the next leg up that will take us to much, much higher prices to multi-thousand dollar prices. We'll have some of those views I'll pass along to you in the last closing minutes of today's show. I also want to tell you about a silver mining company uh, that expects to produce Between 18 and 21 million ounces of silver this year, and then uh, more than 25 ounces per year for a number of years thereafter and get this, the cash cost of producing that silver, less than $5 an ounce. So this is a very exciting story. I do hope that you'll join me in the second hour at J. Taylor Media, not only to hear about that silver story, but also to hear the second half of James Turk and John Rubino's interview, as well as David Gerwitz who will pass along the wisdom of Charles Nanner, one of the top technical analysts in the world, personified by David Gerwitz. We have a very full schedule today so I'm going to get uh, right to the first break and when we come back, Gene Epstein will be with me to talk about free market medicine in Oklahoma, how that is doing wonders to lower the cost of surgical procedures. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Gene Epstein.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors.
1: That's questions, the number four, taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here once again with Gene Epstein, who writes the Economic Beat column for Barron's, and he is also involved with uh, reviewing books uh, for that prestigious weekly business newspaper. Gene also heads up the monthly New York City Junto meetings, which are held on the first Thursday of every month. Uh, which is one of the reasons that Gene is a guest on this show, the first Tuesday of every month. And I would urge those of you who live in the New York City metropolitan area to attend this monthly meeting. As I do, it is held at the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in New York City, and the meetings get underway around 7.30, and then the guest speaker comes on at around 8 o'clock. And this coming Thursday, I'm especially looking forward to uh, Junto because the main speaker is Dr. Keith Smith, who founded the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Dr. Smith will be talking about about how free market medicine is making a comeback in Oklahoma, and how it is drastically lowering the cost of quality health care in that state and beyond well welcome gene it's really good to have you back to turning hard times into good times pleasure as always Really good to have you, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you and Dr. Smith uh, coming up. Um, We have so little time, Gene, uh, today, so let's get right into it. Mm -hmm. The cost of surgical procedures has been reduced drastically from what I'm understanding here uh, in Oklahoma uh, by the Surgery Center of Oklahoma that Dr. Smith heads up. And he, uh, as I mentioned, will be talking to us at the New York City Junto this Thursday. I'm seeing numbers, Gene, that cut the cost for some surgical procedures as, as much as 80%, typically 50% mm. or more. How is the Surgery Center of Oklahoma able to cut costs so drastically for more traditional uh, uh, surgical costs around mm. America? How are they able to do it? Well,
4: it it really does appear uh, based upon everything I know from uh, Keith Smith, who, uh, by the way, is uh, my kind of guy because he's not uh, just a surgeon. Uh, He's not uh, just a guy who knows business. He also is somebody who is inspired by reading Murray Rothbard, and uh, so he also counts himself to be an Austrian economist. Now, an Austrian economist wouldn't necessarily know this right away, but it turns out that all you have to do is cut the overhead that is, cut uh, the, uh, the the number of people who serve at the top, who do administrative work, who get paid better than six-figure salaries at competing surgery centers in Oklahoma City. Uh, that's one thing you do. So that administrative work is, is performed on the clerical level, not by overpaid uh, people. Uh, and second, what you do, and I remember Keith Smith uh, showing me this on the diagram, what you do is that you make sure that the logistics of surgeries are done rationally, so that surgeons apparently report, and I want to tell you in a moment who they're reported to. This too, surgeons report that they can get twice as many surgeries done in a single day at Keith Smith Surgery Centers than they can at competing centers. So all you have to do is sort of operate uh, your surgery center as though it's a profit-maximizing business that looks to spend money where it needs to, but can save money and, and can run its procedures rationally. And- And uh, you can undersell uh, the non-profit competition by a very low rate. Now, uh, my source on most of this information happens to be my son, Jim Epstein, who did a video about Keith Smith and who also wrote an article about him. That's how I got to know Keith. And Jim Epstein uh, will also uh, be at the Jundo Thursday evening to answer questions. In fact, his film about the surgery center will be shown uh, by Keith just prior to his lecture.
2: Well, that's excellent. I'm looking forward to meeting your son finally. Gene, I know you've talked about him on this mm-hmm. show before. And, you know, one of the things I understand about the about this surgical center is that they actually post the cost, mm-hmm. the prices, that is, of surgical procedures yeah. on the Internet. So mm-hmm. people uh, from around the country can look and, and, and actually, uh, as I understand it, Gene, some of them actually people travel uh, from outside of the state of Oklahoma to get work done there?
4: He uh, told me that about half his uh, customers slash patients uh, come from out of the state. Uh, I guess it, it, it is lucky that it's Oklahoma City, right not in New York City, where I guess the, the hotel rates uh, are, are a lot less than in New <laughs> York, although you can find good hotel rates these days almost anywhere, again, via the capitalist internet, and so uh, probably the surgery could be anywhere, but indeed... Uh, what he does, of course, is miraculously, amazingly, uh, post the full cost of the procedures, the full package, just like any business. And because uh, we 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 are stunned by that, uh, but uh, but 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 of course, none of us should be. We should recognize that it is possible to run these uh, these uh, services like a business.
2: Yeah, indeed. Well, yeah. You know, how many times have we seen doctors having to spend so much time uh, involved in clerical activities and so forth? And uh, it seems to be a lot of crony capitalism also in built into the system, into the insurance companies, and, and all of that. So much mm-hmm. extra. Weight that's carried in the it's built into the prices, but you know one of the things my wife and I have talked about is that we don't really know what we are paying for a service, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this is this really is up front. You know exactly mm-hmm. what an dectomy or whatever surgical procedure you're having is going to cost, and and that's mm-hmm. very helpful to the consumer, you know. So, but, mm-hmm. but what do you say, Gene, to people that skeptics that might suggest that, well, you know, yeah, it's Oklahoma, it's not New York City, it's in it's in, it's in the uh, you know in the hinterlands and. Probably Probably the quality of care isn't what it is in the, in the uh, in a place like New York City.
4: Uh, well, I guess that's a, of course a very important question that any customers should ask. But of course. Uh, your earlier question already uh, disproved that because people are coming from all over the country to go to the surgery center and indeed uh, it's, uh, it would probably be the first place. I, I myself have never spent a night of my life in the hospital I'm in well into my 60s uh, but uh, if I ever do I think I probably would go to the surgery center um, for uh, surgery. Uh, I, uh, I guess people would have come to uh, and I know that uh, Jim uh, shows that, uh, that his results are if anything better than anybody else's the surgeries that he performs um, have uh, just as good a track record as anywhere else. He is of course a surgeon himself takes enormously great pride in his work and uh, the first thing of course is safety and effectiveness. Uh, uh, No business uh, can possibly survive uh, unless its reputation is good because of course you and I care about price and we'll care about knowing what it's going to cost but uh, when bodies are going to be operated on we also want to know that good surgeons are doing, and of course it's the same very good surgeons uh, from Oklahoma who are doing it. I'm sure they're just about as good as, as in New York. Maybe there's some kind of very complex surgery that is only performed in New York. I'm not sure. But for for the surgeries that Surgery Center does, its performance, I'm sure, is just as good as anywhere else. By the way, I mean the only beef I have with Keith Smith is that I've told him to his face, I wish he would become the Sam Walton of surgery and start uh, franchises all over the country where you can do so (laughs) legally and lots of places where you can. But Keith, unfortunately, does not have those dreams of grand grandeur. Happily, however, he he does spend a fair amount of time going around the country lecturing with great pride about his business model and he told me he'd be happy to consult with others about setting it up in other parts of the country.
2: Well, that would be wonderful if he could do it. Uh, there are places that would prohibit him, though, from setting up free market economics. A uh, yes, free market, absolutely.
4: Medicine. Yes, yeah, indeed. I, I don't. You, you couldn't. You, you, you do have a bizarre situation, as you may know, where in so many parts of the country, including New York, in order to start up a hospital or any kind of competing anything like a competing surgery center, you have to effectively ask the competition. It has to be. It has to go. When you've mentioned crony capital, what could be worse than that then uh, if uh, if you want to open up a Whole Foods you have to ask all the other supermarkets for permission to open yeah. up a competing Trader Vic yeah. or anything like that yeah. uh, Trader, it's just absurd but that is indeed the situation in so many parts of the country however uh, although Keith isn't too interested in this I, I believe that in much of Pennsylvania you can have surgery centers uh, maybe on Indian reservations they'll do less of gambling they'll do more surgery where they're mm-hmm. exempt from laws uh, I believe there are plenty of opportunities uh, to uh, to put this around the country and not far from where you and I live, for example.
2: You know, Gene, uh, when you talk about moving across state lines and Obamacare, mm-hmm. uh, wh- why is Obamacare not going to help this out? I mean, that is Obamacare. Obamacare has been sold as the the greatest thing to happen to medicine in history. Mm-hmm. Why is Obamacare not going to fix this? I guess just because it's more of the same.
4: Well, absolutely, you took the words out of my mouth, it effectively really is more of the same, and uh, the more of the same is that there is absolutely no cost consciousness on on the supply side. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is only, of course, obviously the reverse motivation uh, to uh, to expand costs because the consumer is not aware of costs. Uh, the consumer we, we imagine that somebody else is paying for it, but eventually, of course, it comes in through our through the pay the paycheck of the average person. Uh, the exploding costs have got to be. Paid for by somebody, and I can assure I can assure you that 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 the one percenters don't have enough. There's not enough there to get them to pay. We're all paying, and so unfortunately, again, since Obamacare is not the simple garden variety model of opening up a business and, and, uh, and catering to customers. It's, again, more of the same. It's the bureaucratization of medical care that it's simply not the right route uh, down which we should go in order to make a, a, of, uh, medical care both affordable and high quality.
2: Yes, yeah, crony capitalism is the interference with the free market that is really getting in the way, and, mm-hmm. and I, I, I can't help but think that there's going to be some pushback against Against this sort of thing from Obamacare, yeah. uh, because the competition is is clearly, you know, if you if you allow competition, mm-hmm. then it it uh, those people that are protected by government and and are living as parasites off the uh, off the f- the flesh of the land, basically um, are are hurt, and there's mm-hmm. always pushback. So I would imagine uh, there is going to be some restrictions, perhaps even for people trying to go to Oklahoma for surgery.
4: Oh, I see. You know I, I, that kind of pushback. Uh, you mean uh, yeah. they'll try to pass? Well, you know, I think I think it, it, it's it's all, it's intriguing to talk about how free market revolutions happen, how they get challenged. Uh, Bitcoin is getting challenged by the regulator. All kinds of ways. Uber, uh, taxi cabs. So many fascinating things happen uh, that get challenged. the The only possible saving grace is that if we look at uh, at at socialized medicine in other countries, they becoming they be, they have become increasingly grateful to the private sector uh, mm-hmm. as a buffer so, so there's a kind of an irony there it's very possible uh, that, uh, that of course I was going to say the real pushback comes from the entrepreneurs uh, the, the free market pushback of course is coming from people like Keith Smith whether they're going to keep push back at Keith or to some degree regard and be grateful to him for taking in business uh, we'll see um, okay Gene well unfortunately we're out of time
2: uh, I think you make some very good points some of these we'll pick up again <laughs> when we talk to you the next time. Folks, it's the Surgery Center of uh, SurgeryCenterOK.com You can follow up. A lot of you won't be able to go to the uh, Junto meetings because you're outside of the New York City area, but thank you Gene for explaining this to us and uh, I look forward to seeing as many of you as possible at New York City Junto. Uh, that's all the time we have for now, but don't go away because coming up next will be James Turk and John Rubino to talk about their latest book titled The Money Bubble, What to Do About It Before It Pops. So don't go away. We'll be right back with James Turk and John Rubino. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, a symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors
1: that's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today two very good friends of mine, uh, John Rubino and James Turk. They are friends of mine uh, because they're nice guys, but also because they are friends of liberty, and both of them understand very well the importance of honest and just monetary systems in delivering uh, freedom and liberty for people. And uh, John and James previously wrote a blockbuster book titled a Dollar Collapse, and now both have co-authored a second book. This one is titled The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. And uh, so welcome both of you, uh, John and James, to Turning Hard Times into a Good Time. Hi, Jay. Good to to have both of you here, and uh, today we're speaking uh, thanks to modern-day technology. We're able to talk to to James in London and John in Idaho, so it's uh, really good. Well, uh, the book, you know, um, What to Do Before It Pops, I think that's really uh, what we want to find out about. Um, That's the most important thing, how to prepare for the difficulties ahead, but uh, the first section... The book is divided into four sections, uh, and one is how we got here. Uh, so, you know, it, it's uh, James. Can you describe where we are now? I mean, where are we, and how do you know? How does this situation compare with some of the other problematic periods in history?
5: Yeah, you know, this is probably the worst um, for the simple reason that the level of debt that we see not only in the United States but around the world is the highest uh, that it's ever been before. And that's just the the direct debt. And then you add on top of that all of the contingent liabilities, you know, the various derivative trading, the various promises that governments have made. Um, And the problem is is that, you know, debt has to be serviced. And in order to service debt, the economy has to create wealth. But we're not creating wealth fast enough to service the debt. Uh, And steps that the government has taken, you know, what's called financial repression, Uh, Like lowering interest rates to abnormally low levels is really not helping the situation. It's actually hurting because you're destroying capital, you're destroying savings, uh, and that impairs economic activity. So, you know, relative to the past, you know, this is the worst it's ever been. And we got here by, you know, uh, not following what was required in the Constitution. Um, You know, the the framers of the Constitution uh, created a more perfect union. Uh, in order to solve the problems that existed after the War of Independence with the Articles of Confederation. And one of those was that the money of the United States shall be gold and silver coined. You know, and so it was until about 100 years ago, then they started fiddling with it, um, starting with uh, Roosevelt particularly. And then the last of the, the wisdom of the framers was abandoned in 1971. Now we've got currency that's... Basically backed by nothing except government promises, which is exactly what happened with the Continental after the War of Independence, that currency collapsed, and it's likely that the dollar is going to collapse, too, for the same problems that the framers faced. Too many promises have been made that cannot possibly be
2: fulfilled. Yeah, and as you pointed out, the debt is growing much more rapidly than uh, than income, right? And so we're I- increasingly, it seems, with each of these sort of new uh, creation of uh, monetary, the quantitative easing episodes that we've had with each one of them, it seems as though the problem is, as you point out, James, is getting worse, not better. But you know, uh, John Murray Rothbard in his book *The Great Depression* showed that the Fed was very aggressive with his monetary policy and fiscal policy in the nineteen thirties. I mean, he tried it, the Keynesian economic theory. Was tried back then, and yet um, uh, it didn't work. It didn't work at all, really. Uh, some people say World War II was what bailed us out. There's, I think, there's some uh, reasonable questions about that theory as well. But nonetheless. Uh, it You know, we had a decade of depression in the 1930s. Why didn't we learn that this kind of policy, because it seems to me what's going on now, is the same policy, uh, the same kind of policies that were tried in the 1930s, only more so than in the 1930s. So, John, why do you think that we persist? Why do the policymakers persist in, in this kind of uh, policy that has clearly failed? Well, a few reasons. One one is that they interpret history differently than uh, Marie
0: Rothbard and and you and James and I do. Uh, They believe that the government wasn't aggressive enough Mm -hmm. in 1931 or 1935 in in liquefying the system. And that if the government had just created more currency, tossed it out into the world, we'd have recovered a lot more quickly. And the second reason is that these guys, so the guys who are in charge now, have spent their entire working lives responding to every crisis with the same tools, M- much easier money, much lower interest rates, um, and it's worked up until now. They, they actually, um, based on their own experience, believe these tools are effective. Uh, you know, go back to the, the Mexican bailout and then the long-term capital management crisis, and then the tech stock bust, and then the housing bust. E- in each case, they lowered interest rates and created a lot of new currency, gave it to the banks, and the economy recovered. So they think that this is um, the correct policy. They think that's how you uh, respond to crises. And what they miss is that after each of these, the amount of debt in the system is dramatically higher, and the, the subsequent bust is bigger, and the, uh, the bailout that's required to fix everything is even bigger. So we've reached the point now where the, the numbers are just insane. You know, there, there are no other policy tools that you can use to address something like what we have going now. You know, can you imagine uh, a Paul Volcker coming into office now and, and raising interest rates the way he did back in uh, the late 1970s, early 80s? It would, it would destroy the global financial system. So the, the only thing that's left now is more of the same. And that's why that's what we're going to see. When, uh, say, the emerging markets continue to implode as they are now, what we're going to see is the central banks of the world um, Doubling down on QE and increasing the global money supply, lowering interest rates maybe to negative levels, uh, because they believe, first
2: of all, that the tool works, and second of all, they they won't see any alternative. Yeah. It's, uh well so what they're missing is in the short run it seems to work you get a little bit of uh, a little bit of joy out of the new QE I guess and and, and the equity markets of course have have uh, seemed to respond very nicely to it but the the economy as a whole from all the economic statistics that I that I pick up is even the even the mainstream are are uh, admitting that it isn't been very successful in terms of reviving economic uh, uh, growth and so forth but uh, you know it seems to me that what we're looking is it, it seems Seems to me what we're doing is trying to socialize uh, the problem, spread out the risk, and try to get everybody. Uh, you know, to to lay all of this garbage on on the population. So if we go to, you know, the European situation right now, you have the stronger economies like Germany, you have the weak ones like, um, you know, like porch the southern European countries that are suffering more. And the idea, and and the idea even is for the United States to sort of share its wealth. And uh, Bernanke was pumping money into the into Europe after two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, there as well. Uh, but so I mean clearly it isn't working, but how much longer um either john or, or or James how much longer can this persist? It seems to me what we have the parasites are eating away at the muscle fiber of the of the global economy essentially and we you know and and so sooner or later it's going to chuck choke off the lifeblood of of the global economy, isn't it john yeah 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 i did go ahead john oh
0: okay i'll i'll just be brief here what what can't go on Will not go on forever. That's just how life works, and and the numbers have gotten um, really unmanageable by this point. But the the timing of these things is really impossible to call because um, w- when James and I wrote our previous book, uh, 2005 more or less seemed to be the year when everything was going to fall apart, and uh, we we didn't have the big crisis until 2008, and we seem to have gotten past that temporarily. So it's really hard to um, to name a date when when all of these chickens come home to roost. But you can say with certainty that they
2: will at some yeah. point in the not too distant future. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean it's the timing is always the issue, isn't it? And and James, any thoughts on that? How long how much longer can the parasites suck the lifeblood out of the entire global economy?
5: You know anywhere from one month to maybe five years. But here's the point, Jay, you know, it hasn't happened yet, so we still have time to prepare for it. Yeah. And that's one of the key elements of, of, of the of the book that you know how to prepare for uh, the eventuality and taking those steps that you need
2: to take in order to you know come what may, you and your family are protected. Right. So we can be thankful that we still have some time. The main thing, though, is to is to wake up and face this reality. Uh, as best we can it seems as though that's the last thing that the establishment wants us to do because they want to persist they want to keep the keep the game going kick the can down the road a little a little fo- uh, a little further uh, into the future well John you know you've re- recently written some things about where you think some of the hot spots some of the things uh, that the areas of the world that might sort of trigger the crisis and there's a an analyst that I pay a lot of attention to a technical an- analyst who's been on uh, on this show uh, Michael Oliver who was suggesting recently last last week he was suggesting that you know everybody's sort of focused on the S&P 500 he says not so look at turkey and some of these places he thought might really be a place where uh, where we see some problems but we have started to see with uh, a little bit of the removal of quantitative easing we have started to see some some issues with the rising uh, w- with currency problems in places like turkey and elsewhere but john what are your thoughts on that do you, you see some areas where people should really be watching out for now Well,
0: yeah, the the emerging markets are are pretty topical right now because uh, they're they're beginning to implode. And what what happened there was we, uh, in the developed world, we created huge amounts of new currency in order to deal with our domestic debt problems. But uh, a lot of that liquidity didn't stay here it flowed into emerging markets and it bit up their asset prices and convinced governments and and businesses and individuals in brazil and india and china and other places to borrow a lot more money than they should have well now we're we're starting to try to rein in some of the excess liquidity in uh, in the us and that's causing that hot money to flow back here into treasury bonds and, and other things, and out of the, um, the emerging markets, and they're crashing. <laughs> so you, you could think of them as the, um, the, the subprime borrowers of this cycle. You know that, that was the segment of the mortgage market that blew up first in 2007 and brought down the rest of the, uh, the financial system, and it could be that um, Thailand or Turkey or somebody like that is the, the catalyst this time around. Mm-hmm. And if they aren't the catalyst, then Japan could be the catalyst, because they, uh, they right now, the J- Japanese government owes more money as a percent of GDP than any country in history. And they depend on low interest rates to survive, you know, let their interest rates just go up by a few percentage points, and they're toast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Europe has had tight monetary policy for the past year, and they're dropping back into recession at a time when uh, youth unemployment is 50% or more in several countries, which is a, a prescription for political unrest, which might lead to an unraveling of the Eurozone. So, you know, the, the, the number of things that could go wrong um, is multiplying quickly. Yeah. And so there's no way to know which is going to be the thing that blows up first.
2: But one of those things is pretty much guaranteed to blow up in the next few years, if not the next few weeks. Well, it's kind of hard to predict the, the weakest link, I guess, because it's obviously a dynamic uh, situation. But James, any thoughts on that? You're you're in London, and, uh, um, you know, how are the Brits doing these days? Well, surprisingly, the Brits are doing much
5: better than the rest of Europe, but they, too, also have a debt problem. You know, governments just don't want to really cut back on their promises and their expenditures, and consequently, they think that they can borrow not to build uh, meaningful things and develop infrastructure but borrow to meet operating expenses. Um, and, you know, that's like a family borrowing on their credit card to, you know, buy groceries. Uh, yeah. You can only do that for so long before you hit the wall. And, you know, I think that's the point that John's making. You know, countries like Japan in particular, uh, they've been doing this now for just, you know, too long. And you're reaching the stage where you can see that, you know, the can that they're kicking down the road the road ends at a cliff and that can is very close to that cliff. And that cliff means that, you know, something's got to give. Uh, the, the currency, you know, ultimately gets inflated away or they just break the promises and default on the debt. And history shows that what governments and politicians tend to do is destroy the currency. And that way they can at least say that they're nominally, you know, fulfilling their promises, but the currency isn't going to be worth, you know, anything compared to what the promise, uh, what the value of the currency was when the promise was made in the first place.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it just seems like, you know, people don't want to face the reality of what we need to do. And somehow Japan thinks that they can just continue to print endless amounts of money, worse than as, as John pointed out, worse than any, any other country, their debt to GDP levels, I, I believe now. Um, but, well, but Jay, let me just yeah, add, add sure. to that because you know this sort of highlights the theme of, of the money
5: bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when conventional wisdom is basically wrong, uh, that's what creates a bubble. And yeah. you know, a couple examples that we use in the book: we talk about the dot com bubble back in two thousand. You know, everybody said back then it, uh, profits didn't matter; only market share did. And when that bubble popped, everybody realized, you know, how how stupid they were to think, you know, that conventional wisdom was 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 correct when in fact it was totally wrong. Or in the real estate bubble, everybody said housing prices only go up. Well, you know, anybody who looked at history knew that that was not the case. And as a consequence, when that bubble popped, everybody realized how silly it was to believe that conventional wisdom. Today, the conventional wisdom is that central banks can just create money out of thin air. That's not how money works. That's not not the process of money. You know, everybody today has a misconception of what money really is. You know, money in the true sense is the most liquid commodity, the most liquid tangible asset in the economy, and that's gold and silver. And that's because they don't have counterparty risk. They're tangible assets that can be used so that when you go into a shop to purchase a good or service, an asset is exchanged for another asset, And I think that's a key misconception that people just don't understand today. And that's what's allowed this money bubble to be created. Yeah, indeed,
2: and the, and the con job that has been uh, that has been uh, sold to the American public, I believe, is that uh, they don't really realize that the dollar isn't backed by gold any longer. And I just interestingly enough, years ago, my son's history teacher, eighth grade his, history teacher, still thought that the dollar was backed by gold. So I think there was a transition from a backing to a non-backing that people, you know, other than those of us who think about it, aren't even aware. So people still sort of think the dollar is as good as gold in a way psychologically they seem to think that but you know you have to you have to wonder you know chapter 5 of your book is titled over levered banks and the derivatives time bomb and recently hsbc uh... one of the largest banks in the world certainly uh... tried to limit the amount of money that would be taken by their larger depositors or i guess what they were doing is asking all kinds of questions well why are you taking your money out what are you going to use it for and so on and so forth this is uh, this to me is just unconscionable i mean i did uh, the idea i know legally that when you put your money in a bank it's not you're making a loan to the bank it's an unsecured loan i understand that but People always believe that it's their money and they should be able to go back and get it anytime they want it. But James, what what are your thoughts about this move by HSBC? I, I presume you've, you've heard about it. What what does this tell you about, um, are they planning the next insolvency, do you think? These guys realize what's coming? Yeah, you know, financial
5: repression, which is you know what has been the, the theme uh, in the financial system now for years and years, is growing, and it's growing in ways that you know, human creativity uh, can allow. And this is just, in my mind, another form of financial repression or, or an attempt to uh, uh, imp- impose another form of financial repression. You know, the reality is is that people should be allowed to do what they want with their money. Yeah. Uh, and, and that reality today is very, very hard to do. And there are many different examples. For example, it's very difficult now for a U.S. citizen to open a bank account anywhere in the world. Because Tell me orders- about it. Yeah, rules and regulations yeah. have been imposed. Now, that may not seem important to a lot of people who don't travel abroad, but there's a part of the bigger picture that it's just one little uh, uh, cog in the wheel that makes it more and more difficult for people to transact with one another and to do with what they want with their money. And you know, that's really unfortunate when you reach that,
2: reach that kind of stage you know i I think uh, you pointed out a, a moment ago or so, James that what we have now is is liability money instead of asset money. gold is an asset as you as you pointed out there 's no counterparty risk it 's uh, you know it 's yours it has intrinsic value, and your dollars, as you pointed out years ago uh, James was at uh, it's only as good as the ability of your of, of creditors, of people, the debtors, to pay their their debts. And clearly, we are, as as we've been discussing, running into some huge problems with debt growing much more rapidly than incomes are growing. And so the whole system is is becoming more and more shaky. Uh, but. <laughs> it, on that
5: point, Jay, yeah. I just want to add because I think this is a critical point in terms of you know the theme of the book and sure an element that people need to understand. There's a difference between being money and a money substitute. You know, gold is money, and the dollar was a money substitute backed by gold. The dollar circulated because it was more convenient to use uh, paper currency and bank accounts and sure. things of that nature. Sure. sure, but it used to be tied to gold. Sure, and what's happened today is that people have lost sight of the difference between money and a money substitute. They think the money substitute is money itself, whereas in fact it's just a promise, and promises tend to be broken, particularly so in financial busts.
2: Yeah, indeed. And, uh, well, people, people don't really, they just don't understand that fact. That's for sure. They don't understand, uh, money. You know, we, we're talking about debt and people understand something about debt. They have credit card debts. They know banks have liabilities and so forth. But we have something called derivatives. Could either, either of you, uh, perhaps John, talk a little bit about the, the size of the derivatives markets, I mean, this is something that people don't really think about at all, but we started, of course, to see some problems with derivatives in 2008-2009. Uh, could, could either of you maybe talk a little bit about the magnitude of, um, of off-balance sheet liabilities uh, as opposed to balance sheet liabilities? John, perhaps. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, th- this is where this is where it gets
0: really scary because if, if you look at just reported debt, um, it, it's higher in the U.S. and in most of the rest of the world than it was in in 1929. So, if debt was the problem then, then we've got an even bigger problem now. But our reported debt. Isn't the biggest part of the story today because we've got all these these new exotic forms of debt that don't get reported as debt. And uh, one is unfunded liabilities of the, uh, the the various government pension plans like Medicare and Social Security. That's two or three times GDP in the U.S. and it's real debt because it's money promised to retiring baby boomers. You know, try try politically to take away our health care, and see what happens. Oh, so boy. that yeah, so that's that's a real obligation but it doesn't show up in the government deficit statistics. And then derivatives are these um, off-balance sheet, unregulated uh, financial instruments that uh, banks use basically to gamble in in various financial markets. But um, they get away with it by being on both sides of, of various deals and then netting out the long and short positions to come up with a really low net exposure. And that's... A, a disastrously deceptive way of presenting these things because if one counterparty fails then all of a sudden the, the net number becomes gross. In other words, you owe the whole thing if you're a big bank. And that happened in, um, in, in 2008 when a big insurance company named AIG went bust. And then all of a sudden, all of the derivatives that they owed on became the, uh, the liabilities of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and they would have gone bankrupt, those big banks, if the government hadn't come in and bailed out AIG. And the, the numbers with derivatives are absolutely insane right now. You know, De, Deutsche Bank, for instance, their gross derivatives exposure is bigger than the German GDP, bigger than the German economy, just Incredible. Not one bank. Incredible. And and it's the same thing for JPMorgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and all the other big money center banks. So when one big hedge fund or one other counterparty, a, a bank or whatever, um, gets into trouble and can't cover their side of these derivatives deals, then everything is going to blow up at some point. And, uh, and that's very easy to picture because big hedge funds blow up all the time. And banks get into trouble all the time. And so we're liable to see something like what we saw in 2008 but even bigger because everything else is more extreme now. So when when derivatives blow up, that could also be the catalyst that uh, that takes down the global financial system. You know, the, the number of things that could go wrong um, are, are just – so numerous out there, you know there are so many things that could blow up, and derivatives are I think the the biggest one because they 're their numbers are so extreme, and the, uh, the, the, the likelihood of them blowing up is, is so great right now, just because there are so many players and so many highly leveraged players out there, any one of which could be the catalyst for the, the, the system freezing up.
2: Yeah, and of course, it's like dominoes, like a chain, uh, chain reaction. When one goes, it can start to set the others going, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's really very frightening. And we will, we, those of us, well, we've all lived through 2008, 2009. How quickly people forget, though. Uh, how frightening that was, and yet, uh, and not learning that you know we're doing the same policies as we said over and over again. We're talking to James Turk and John Rubino, uh, authors of *The Money Bubble*, a new their newest collective um, effort, and it's really a great book. And I would tell my listeners that they should try to get a copy of it. Where can they, uh, John or James, where where can they go to um, to get a copy of the book? Amazon, Am- Amazon Am- dot Amazon com, and and uh, local bookstores as well it could be through local bookstores so we should be able to go to Barnes Noble and Noble and pick up a copy of it as well hopefully yes. or order it through them anyway uh, well we talked about how we got here and as, as we've been discussing it's it's quite a, a heck of a mess we've gotten ourselves into or I should say our policymakers have simply by not as James pointed out not following the constitution and, and the definition of what money is I mean it, people don't understand the importance of money that uh, the integrity the honesty of money to have dishonest money I mean it's such a moral issue too it's a it's a redistribution of wealth. It's theft, if you will, uh, through reallocation of wealth. And then they have all these socialist politicians and Republicans, Democrats alike, that say, oh, we just need to tax the rich. And then they don't understand that they're, they've already uh, destroyed capitalism through financial repression. Now they want to go out and start to tax people who have, uh, in some cases, not all cases, in some cases, have actually done some good things, building the Internet, doing all kinds of things that are, that are valuable. Those people shouldn't be taxed, as Ron Paul talked about. Repeatedly, on the other hand, you have the thieves, I think, the banking industry, primarily who are using all kinds of connections with government to get laws passed. And most importantly, to get money printed that seem to uh, seem to benefit them first, uh, those closest to the feeding trough. Well, we talked about how we got here. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the consequences and scenarios. And before we get to that, I just want to mention, though, that you know we're, we're covering a lot of material from the book today in general terms. But the book has a huge number of... Uh, tables and figures that are very, very valuable in terms of providing a picture of what we're talking about today. So don't just think that you can listen to this interview. You need to buy the book as well, and and we hope that you'll go out and do that. Well, consequences and scenarios. James, could you talk a bit about how fiat money corrupts society? I mean, I was just sort of preaching a sermon about it, but it, how it does that and how it really encourages speculation instead of honest uh, investment and hard work. Yeah, that's exactly right. What fiat money does is it Tilts the playing field uh,
5: in favor of those people who understand what's happening in the monetary process and how the currency is being debased. And for for, um, strong economic activity, you need a level playing field, and you cannot achieve that with fiat currency. Because fiat currency can be manipulated and managed by people who are in control, and that's unfortunately... You know what has happened, particularly over the last several years since the 2008 financial collapse.
2: Yeah, and so the people that are closest and understand it—I mean, I—I know of examples in my own life. Uh, My my good friend Chen Lin, uh, who was uh, getting his PhD in aeronautical engineering from Princeton, decided he didn't need to work so hard. He was making so much more money using his brains to uh, uh, to game the market, and you know that was a right decision for him. But I'm thinking, why? You know, why is this possible? And I think I think it goes back to honest money. Uh, John, do you have anything to add on that? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> fiat currency
0: corrupts society in so many different ways. Um, one of the ways is that it leads government to take on too much debt and then... To hide the magnitude of the consequences of that debt, you know what, what the U.S. government does right now is because they're, they're creating so much new currency to cover their debts they build up over the last three thirty or so years that it is causing inflation in the system. But they're changing the way they calculate inflation in order to hide that fact. So um, John Williams at ShadowStats.com has done some comparisons of the uh, of inflation as they. Calculate it today versus how it would be if they'd kept on calculating it as the way they did in the early 1980s. And using the old method of calculating inflation, we'd have inflation rates on the CPI of about 10% right now. So the world would be a very different place if we were um, calculating inflation and reporting it honestly. And that feeds into all the other economic statistics that require um, deflation, according, or, yeah, deflation according to the uh, inflation rate. So GDP would be much lower than it is now, and uh, personal income would be a lot lower. And so the, the U.S. would look like it was in a lot worse shape if we were reporting honest numbers. Yeah. and In, the fact that we're not can be traced back to the fact that we have fiat
2: currency. Right, for sure. And of course, just the accounting aspect of it seems uh, Williams' work seems to ring true, much more true, uh, from personal experience and also from the sort of the confidence indexes that are run out there. And Williams, you know, takes that uh, to your point, John. Takes that uh, that inflation rate and and reduces GDP, and and we've never really come out of this uh, this this depression that started with uh, with Lehman Brothers, post Lehman Brothers. And uh, and that seems to be more what I'm seeing when I travel to my home in Ohio and uh, elsewhere. When I get away from the feeding trough of New York City and Washington, then that seems to be more the experience. And people are really having a very difficult time of it. It's not the the standard of living is de- declining very very. Rapidly. Well, it's not only domestically that we have issues with uh, fiat money; that it also does a lot of other things. In Chapter Seven, the two of you talk about the perpetual war in the emerging police state. You know, based on the revelation of Edward Snowden, it seems as though the police state is already it's here. And Danny McAdams, uh, who's on my show frequently from the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, you, you know, he talks a lot about how the lies that are being perpetuated and, and given to Americans. But none of this would have been possible, it seems, if it was for fiat money. Indeed, I, those, all of us. I guess are. I don't know about you, John, but James and I are old enough to remember 1971 when Nixon took us, uh, it, it, you know, closed the gold window because policymakers wanted to have war and they wanted to have socialism and how are they going to pay for it? They weren't going to tax us for it. They printed money. De Gaulle said, "I want the gold. I don't want your fake money. Give me the real thing." And and so there was a run on the gold in our coffers and uh, Nixon. Uh, close the gold uh, close the gold window and then we saw that's when we started seeing credit take off credit cards and all kinds of things but that financed the war machinery well james can you help our listeners understand uh, you know is that can you maybe talk a little bit more about that connection between uh, fiat money and, and uh, global policies of, of the U.S.?
5: Yeah, let me just mention one thing about uh, Nixon, though, because I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. He only closed the temp- uh, gold window supposedly temporarily. Yeah, you know, that's His right. instruction to uh, John Connolly, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, was to suspend temporarily, quote-unquote, the gold window. Because, you know, he understood that, as did all, all other policymakers at that time, that if you go into a world of fiat currency, you're ultimately going down the wrong road. Uh, he just didn't have uh, the, uh, the, will- the ability or the willingness or the leadership, whatever, to make the tough decision that Roosevelt did. Roosevelt was also in a similar situation in a sense that uh, the dollar was um, overvalued, gold was undervalued in the 1930s. So he devalued the dollar by 69%, Roosevelt did, devalued the dollar by 69% against, uh, against gold. Nixon, on the other hand, suspended the, uh, promises to redeem the dollars for gold, and we've been on the wrong path ever since. But the, the bit about the police state is important because it ties into financial repression generally. You know, if you have an increasing number of monetary problems, you see more financial repression. And as the currency tends to become doubted, the, the, the police state mechanism is in place. And uh, when you have economic chaos, that's when the demagogues arrive. Uh, and can take advantage of the police state that's already been put into place or the mechanisms that have already been put into place. And that's sort of a scary thing about looking, you know, where we are today and what might happen in the future. Because if you go back and look at periods of monetary chaos in the past, they don't always end in a happy way. No. You know, the monetary chaos after the American War of Independence um, and the collapse of the continental currency, which was the first currency of the country, that ended in a happy way because the framers uh, reformed the, the, the monetary system through the Constitution. But if you look at what happened in Germany in after the collapse of their currency in the 1920s, you had the rise of fascism, and we all know how that worked out. So, you know, periods of monetary chaos or monetary collapse are periods of uncertainty, and they can go the wrong way. They don't necessarily go the right way.
2: Yeah, indeed. And the French Revolution was no uh, was not so easy either. But actually, uh, people that owned gold found themselves in trouble in the French Revolution, right?
5: Yeah, that's another great example. You know, the people who did have gold ended up leaving France because they wanted the safety of living in other countries. The shopkeepers in France there's a great book, by the way, it's available free on the Internet, called uh, Fiat, Money, Inflation in France by uh, Andrew Dixon White. Mm-hmm. It explained how the shopkeepers, because of government controls, forced the shopkeepers to stay open and sell their goods and services at something less than the fair value. And if they didn't, the shopkeepers would be sent to prison or worse. So the shopkeepers just basically closed up shop and moved, and the economy collapsed as, as well. It's all a, a great example of financial repression
2: and the consequences of of going down the wrong road yeah, they had something called the guillotine for people in, in France, and, uh, and you know, uh, you know people think, people in this country, and I don't know how many of my friends say, it can't happen here. And, you know, it's a little bit, it seems like it is happening here. I mean, we don't know what extreme events might take place, but like the frog in the water that's heated slowly, it seems to me we're going down that path, little by little by little, and the, the erosion of our liberties, and now the idea that the government, uh, with the Cyprus event, just go in and take a certain amount of your money, and the fact that 18 uh, HSBC is, it seems to me, they're getting ready for it. It almost seems like the handwriting is on the wall. You hear the, I think it was the FDIC uh, and the Bank of England that had a a joint paper that is planning for. Uh, bail-ins and so forth. but uh, You know, Jay, yeah, yeah. on this
5: point, it's, it's, it's a good one because this comment that you made about the, people think it can't happen here. Right. I like to use the example. If you'd gone to the Soviet Union in 1990, a year before it collapsed, and said to the average guy on the street that I have perfect foresight and in one year the Soviet Union is going to collapse and the ruble is going to collapse, ninety nine out of a hundred times maybe nine hundred ninety nine of a thousand times the average guy on the street would say it can't happen here because the government won't let it happen yeah what, the, what that person in Russia was missing was that the government itself was the problem, and if you go you know on any street in the states today you know ninety nine out of a hundred people say it won't happen because yeah. the government won't let it happen exactly but they're missing the point. That the government itself and the control of the currency
2: is the problem itself <laughs> is the problem. Well, it's uh, Ronald Reagan said it. That uh, government isn't the solution. Government's the problem. You know, James, speaking of the French Revolution and the trust Americans have in their government, I'm reminded of a quote that appears at the front of your book, uh, the book that you and John wrote, The Money Bubble. This is a quote from Robespierre, and it goes like this. It says, the secret of freedom lies in educating people, whereas the secret of tyranny is in keeping them ignorant, end of quote. Well, the U.S. government uses its so-called educational system, I believe, not to educate, but as a propaganda tool primarily, and that's to keep people down on the mushroom farm, as they say. Just as surely as the Soviet Union used its educational system to keep Russians ignorant and thus subjected to its tyranny. As well, our major media... Is used, I think, for the same purpose to keep people ignorant. And our major banking institutions, the ones that own the Federal Reserve Bank, are manipulating interest rates, currencies, and precious metals markets for the same purpose to keep people people ignorant of reality and thus subject to U.S. government tyranny. Well, that's what I believe, anyway. And my, you know, my engineer, though, unfortunately, he's telling me that I am out of time for the first hour of today's show. But we will be coming right back at the uh, at JTaylorMedia.com to pick up on this theme of the con game played by our government and its fascist partners in the uh, corporate world. I want to explore this topic of misplaced government, uh, gold market manipulation, and most importantly, topics about what people need to do, not only to survive, but hopefully to thrive uh, through what is most likely going to be some very difficult days ahead. So please, folks, go immediately to jtaylormedia.com to listen to the rest of our discussion today with James Turk and John Rubino. And later in the hour, I will also be talking to David Gerwitz about Charles Nanner's latest technical views on gold and other Major markets. In closing the first hour of today's show, I do want to thank my producer, Tacey Trump, and my engineer Matt Widener for making this show logistically possible. Now please go to JTAylorMedia.com to listen to the remainder of this show. I'll see you there.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor.